2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Erin McCarthy. Erin teaches digital humanities at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and today we're talking to Erin about her important new book, Doubtful Readings Print, Poetry, and the Reading Public in Early Modern England, just published by Oxford University Press. Erin, it's great to have you on the show, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you, Crawford, and thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to join you. Uh, I'm, ple- I'm glad we've managed to work out an, an agreeable time, given our uh, geographic separation at the moment. <laughs>
2: That's right. Well, we really appreciate your time as well, Erin. Thank you. Well, before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Because you weren't always in Australia, were you?
1: No, I'm actually a fairly recent transplant to Australia. So um, as, as the accent probably betrays, I, I am American. Um, I started my studies at, uh, well, first at Arizona State as an undergraduate, and then the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio as a PhD student. Um, I think I expected to work in the United States, um, but I had this fabulous opportunity in 2014 to move to Ireland um, to work at the National University of Ireland in Galway on um, Mary Louise Coolahan's fabulous European Research Council funded project, RESERC, the reception and circulation of early modern women's writing. Um, and it was, it was so fortunate in so many ways. I, I remember during the interview at Galway, they asked me, like, why would you want to move to the west of Ireland? And as it happened, I had just been in Ireland the previous summer and loved it and thought like, oh, gosh, it would be neat to live here someday. Um, you know, as, as the name suggests, I have some... Irish heritage, um, and and so when they asked me this, I was like, actually, I would love to live in the west of Ireland. That would be great. And I, I had an even better time than I could have imagined. It was a great team. Um, it's in the acknowledgments to the book, you know, it was it's was kind of a dream team of young early modernists, a mix of um, literary historians and and historian historians, um, and and we just kind of all gelled really well as a team. Um, So I was there for a little bit over four years, um, and we're still finishing up um, work out of that project. Uh, We're trying to get a monograph finished. We had hoped to have it done this year, but... Covid nineteen had other ideas, I guess, um, because we've spent a lot of time reworking teaching and things instead. Um, But I I moved to Newcastle in 2019, um, right after I finished up in Galway. So, so that was pretty lucky too. Um, But I kind of moved from this great project to this great new permanent role here in Newcastle, um, where I am, as you say, teaching digital humanities. and uh, trying to to learn a whole new culture now, um, but you know I've been here about a year and a half, so it's it's been good so far.
2: Great, lots of barbecues so far, I'm sure, Erin. Too.
1: Yeah, I've, I've not as many as I think I expected, but you know we'll get there. <laughs> Early days.
2: <laughs> All right, good. Well, listen, we'll, we'll talk some more later on, hopefully, about Mary Louise Coolahan's important project and exactly. the way in which you think about gender uh, in relation to the project that you're developing. But to turn to your book, Erin. Um, Doubtful Readers, Print Poetry in the Reading Public in Early Modern England, just published by Oxford. Can you tell us something about the background to this book? Can you tell us at the start that it really had a, a, a moment of genesis, I think, when you were thinking about John Donne?
1: Yes. Um, John Donne was, was always sort of at the centre of this project. Um, so it was very early in my uh, graduate studies, I think my second year of my master's degree, Um, I became interested in the differences between the 1633 and 35 editions of John's Poems. And I think at that point, I still had the kind of 1669 edition in the back of my mind, too. Um, And I was trying to figure out why they looked so different from each other. Um, What changed? And so I I went to the library. Ohio State had a fantastic library. and, And I would go browse in the stacks and try to find a book that would explain the difference between these two editions. Who was doing literary editing at this time? Um, in the in the 1630s, I should say, not in the early 2000s, which is a different thing. <laughs> um, and uh, I I just couldn't find that book. Um, and so I wrote the seminar paper as well as I could. I don't think it was entirely successful. Um, but that was sort of the kernel of the thesis project that then. Eventually turned into the book. Um, it, it wouldn't. I wouldn't say that the book is that close to the thesis anymore. I think maybe thirty percent of it is is recognizable. Um, but that was that was kind of the kernel that I wanted to find out what was happening with printed poetry specifically. Um, Arthur Morati had done important foundational work in that area, but you know, print was only one, maybe two chapters. Of um, manuscript print in the English Renaissance lyric and I really wanted an account of you know, printed poetry books, how printed poetry books came to look the way they looked. Um, and so that ended up being what I wrote, I also remember, and I've joked about this on Twitter, so I think it's okay to say now, um, I feel like the conclusion to that thesis was was almost a cry for help because there was a sentence that was sort of like, oh, gosh, this was a huge project. No one warned me. Um, but I, I guess it turned out okay. Um, it was huge. Um, but, you know, I think after it ha- more than a decade, I think I finally cracked it.
2: <laughs> it is huge, isn't it, Erin? Um, but uh, unlike a lot of other huge books, it's incredibly subtle as well. And I think I think one of the things that makes this book so rich is that, um, that there are these mul- multiple layers of argument um working simultaneously to complicate and enlighten in ways that I think for me were, were, were really quite revelatory. So I, I mean I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how you developed the project. So uh, obviously, the, I suppose in a nutshell, one of the leading themes in the book is about how the move to print changed poetry, especially lyric poetry. Big and subtle argument, um, but as you develop that big and subtle argument, how what kinds of methods and approaches did you find most rewarding?
1: Um, I think, uh, just as you say, there are multiple levels of argument. I think there were there were multiple layers of um, methodology that went into the book. Um, one is, of course, just close reading, just looking at, at what's there. Compare. I mean, I was actually. Um, when when i was asked to describe my methodology i kind of went like ooh methodology i don't know um and then i realized that that one of the methods is just pure you know let's see what's here let's in in chapter 5 i say you know publishers write these um prefaces and they're often dismissed as conventional but what if we take them at their word um what if we read them carefully and see what they say what what are the publishers telling us they're doing Um, Another important method for me was um, probably my gateway into digital humanities, although I don't think I realized at the time, Um, but I had created this database of 1045 early modern printed poetry books that sort of, was behind the project and I think eventually receded from the way I was writing about the project. Um, but it was, it was always there. And that's what, how I was able to do some of the work around, like quantitative work around, you know, sheet counts, um, determining that Amelia Lanyard's book was physically half dedications. Um, so, so. You know, making the argument that those are actually structurally integral to the book, um, you know, counting sonnets, counting pages and sonnet sequences. Um, and so all of that quantitative methodology um, is sort of, I think, subsumed in that book, but I think informed the way I was thinking about literary history kind of. Um, not at scale in the way that I think Victorian digitally inclined literary historians can, but certainly at a scale that I hadn't seen in early modern studies before. And, and that was, um, I thought kind of my entry point into research, um, when that opportunity became available, because that was about doing quantitative literary history. And I said, Oh, actually, this is, this is what I've been doing for a while. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think those are probably the two, um I guess the the third methodology that I would I would put in that is thinking in terms of um both the history of material texts but also the histories of reading um particularly you know in in the introduction and the first chapter um you know indebted heavily to people like Zeman Davis um so
2: Great. Great. Well tell us a little bit more about digital humanities Erin. and obviously it's it's the focus of your current position at Newcastle University in Australia. Uh, and i suppose as I as i read the book I, I was i was i was intrigued uh by your emphasis upon the importance of the materiality of text and that's not often something that we hear digital humanists saying so in in your thinking about method how do you relate this notion of materiality to the amazing tools that digital humanists can use
1: that's a great question um i mean i, I always point out that digital humanities is kind of it's, it's a really big tent. Um, and it includes a lot of people who, who maybe don't have a lot in common with one another methodologically, but, um, because they're, they're using this tech, they all kind of get folded into this, this group. And, um, you know, strategically, it, it can be of value. Um, you know, there's strength in numbers. Um, I'm definitely of the digital humanities persuasion that's, that's interested in kind of, um, data-driven approaches. And so I think, you know, obviously you have these great digital humanities scholars who are really interested in um, digitization and and born digital materials and creating digital artifacts. And then you have, um, you know, other approaches that are more analytical. And I I think I probably fall into that latter analytical camp and also um, to, to a certain degree, almost an exploratory mode of digital humanities. Um, I think that's certainly the, the mode we've been working in on research, um, kind of gathering data and then trying to see what patterns emerge rather than trying to um, muster things that tell a particular story. Um, and I actually uh, have a grant proposal in right now. I should be hearing about it any day. So keeping my fingers crossed, um, that's kind of almost trying to break various existing digital humanities tools um, and using those points of failure as a way into the material. So it's about taking um, tools that are developed for studying medieval manuscripts or continental re- renaissance manuscripts and um, seeing where they can't accommodate early modern English manuscripts, because my hunch is that these, what I'm calling user produced manuscripts are really just too messy for um, some of these tools to cope with. And I think where they break is where then I I have interesting things to say about those manuscripts.
2: That's interesting, Erin. So not only do you want to break some digital humanities tools, you also want to blow up some widely accepted arguments about the, the, the turn to print in the writing of early modern poetry. So at the start of the book, you talk a lot about the stigma of print argument and uh, you describe various qualifications of that and then your own movement in a different direction, could you just talk us through that as a way of opening up some of the big themes of of the book itself?
1: Absolutely. Um, so when I first started working on printed poetry, uh, this was this was one of the things that just really sort of bothered me about the criticism, but I, I didn't really know what to do with it. That there was there was often this line where, um, people would be writing about printed poetry books and they'd say, well, but you know, the author didn't really want this printed, um, because of the stigma of print, what are you going to do? Um, and that was kind of the end of the discussion of, of the printed book, or it would go on to talk about, you know, the, the piracy or, or, you know, whatever was supposed to have, um, lay behind that printed edition. And, um, You know, it took me a while to figure out how to reckon with this um, idea that on the one hand, authors didn't want to publish their work. But on the other hand, this work was printed and it was being read in printed form. And these printed editions were underlying, um, you know, generations of literary history and editions. Um, And so what I realized was that ultimately it didn't really matter What authors wanted. Um, Authors might be vehemently opposed to having their works printed, but that didn't mean that the printed editions didn't have meaning, like inherent meanings in them. Um, And and, you know, in the case of Dunn, who was always at the the center of this, you know, Dunn was dead by the time his poems were printed. So what he wanted, um, it sounds kind of cold, but it's almost irrelevant. (laughs) Um, and, and you know, as I say in the book, like in an age before authorial copyright, um, you know, we might feel sorry for the authors that, that their works were printed either against their wishes or in ways they might not have wanted. But actually, there's nothing really wrong with that. Um, And so I think kind of setting aside authors' desires. And I think, you know, I I have predecessors in doing that. I I quote Adam Hooks. um, I think Joshua Eckhart does that to a certain extent in his book on manuscript miscellanies and kind of says like, intentions are not really what we're after. It's it's more kind of the effects of um, these material documents. And so I I think I'm working more in that vein.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it (sighs) <sighs> A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's great. Well, often we, we, we distinguish, don't we, between manuscript and print publication. And I think somewhere in the book you tell us that John Donne's poems, although published posthumously, were recorded in something like two and a half thousand commonplace books. Is, is that right? Something like that?
1: It's, um, I think the current estimate is 4,500 manuscript witnesses, although then there are fewer, um, you know, manuscripts that, that contain these witnesses. But it's a huge number. And that's just what survives. Um, you know, who knows how many more there were.
2: So if if poetry could circulate as widely as that in manuscript form, what does the turn to print represent in terms of creating a reading public?
1: I think um, what the turn to print represents is kind of... Um, I'm pausing because I, I don't think democratisation is quite right, but it's creating um, a wider reading public. It's still not... Um, it's still not universal, which is why I'm resisting the term democratic. Um, you know, there, there are still barriers in terms of literacy. And I think the biggest one is, is really cost. Um, printed books were fairly expensive in a time when wages are, are pretty stagnant and, um, you know, people don't necessarily have a lot of disposable income to spend on books. Um, but, but what printing does is it takes poetry out of those more social restricted networks where it lived before. Um, you know, poetry was something that you would circulate to friends or to colleagues or potential employers, or, um, at least the, the kind of poetry, um, that I'm talking about in book. It wasn't something that you just sort of share indiscriminately and by putting it for sale, in St. Paul's churchyard or in, you know, provincial bookshops, um, you're, you're giving access to this readership that wouldn't have had access to these works before and therefore wouldn't have the same kind of context that a reader receiving a poem, you know, enclosed in a letter or, um, you know, passed to them hand to hand from a friend, um, you know, that they'd have that context, but someone buying the book might not. And so I think that's where um, publishers and other uh, what I call non-authorial agents start to play a really big role, is they have to kind of frame this material up so that um, this wider readership knows what they're looking at, or or at least knows what the producer of that book wants them to think they're looking at.
2: Now, maybe this is a really obvious question, um, but when some when when you find traces of when you find excerpts from Dunn's poetry in in manuscript in a commonplace book or elsewhere, I suppose you can at least expect that the person who's copied out has read the poem, and so you, you can get a sense of the circulation and also a kind of a hard statistical number for the reading public of that poem in manuscript. But yeah. with with the turn to to print publication, as these books are dispersed m- more widely we might, we might think, is it harder to quantify the size of a reading public?
1: I think it is. Um, There have been some great recent studies that have um, considered popularity in terms of print editions. And I think that's a great starting point for thinking about how popular something is. You know, obviously, if it's reprinted 16 times in five years, um, that you have a very successful book on your hands. But, you know, then as now, um, not everything you read is in a book that you bought brand new yourself. Um, And I mean, that would be true in manuscripts, too. Like manuscripts could have further readers. Um, But printed books, you know, they were shared. um, They were lent. They were stolen. Um, I saw an interesting Facebook post from Marsh's library the other day where they're still trying to track down some of their books that were stolen a hundred years ago. Um, People, you know, Abraham Cooley um, talks about reading books in his parents' Parlor. Um, So you have all these kind of onward circulations from that original printed edition. And that's why I find William St. Clair's idea of the multiplier really valuable. I think, you know, the number of of printed editions in existence is a good starting point for thinking about um, the readership of a book. But you know, once they're printed, they can go so many different places. Um, I, I look a little bit at library catalogs in Doubtful Readers. That was also a kind of evidence we were using on research um, Ownership lists, seeing things show up, you know, in France or in colonial Massachusetts um, really gives you an idea of how much further these things are, are going once they make it into these printed books. Yeah.
2: Okay, let's let us turn the conversation to some specific examples then, Erin. So w- w- one of the um, texts uh, that you're most interested in, I suppose, in the book is Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, you remind us that these appeared in a couple of different editions early on. Why does that matter in terms of your bigger argument about the way in which the turn to print changes our reading of and an approach to poetry?
1: I think looking at the different forms in which the sonnets circulate is important because we so often take that 1609 quarto as um, the norm. We assume that that's, you know, Shakespeare's definitive version of those sonnets. Um, that's the order they should be in. That's the number there should be. Um, we kind of take for granted that early modern readers would have agreed. Um, and I was really either that or we sort of look at them as a piracy and an abomination. And um, and you know, we we wonder how they came to be in that form. But either way, you know, the, the 1609 book Shakespeare's Sonnets is often conflated with Shakespeare's Sonnets, not in italics, the sort of literary work in the, you know, Thomas Tansel sense. Um, and, you know, I think there's been enough recent work Troubling that, that, that we have to wonder, um, is, is that 1609 book the sonnets or is that one version of the sonnets? Um, and so I'm particularly interested in the Passion of Pilgrim. Um, I think, you know, because that went through three editions, um, two before, at least three editions, um, two before the 1609 quarto and then one after, um, I I think it's worth kind of taking that book seriously as a book that at least early modern readers would have thought of as part of Shakespeare's reputation. Um, Because again, I'm, I'm sort of locating some of the interpretive agency in these early modern readers rather than our kind of, you know, even if we could prove definitively that the passionate pilgrim was not not in line with Shakespeare's expectations. Um, it still meant something to the people who read it. Um, but you know, there have been other scholars who have been doing really interesting work. Um, Faith, Faith Acker and Megan Heffernan have both written really well about John Benson's 1640 edition of Shakespeare's poems. Um, I have not yet had the opportunity to see Stanley Wells and Paul Edmondson's new edition of all the sonnets. Um, But, you know, I I think we're we're starting to think more capaciously about what the sonnets mean. But I I think it's important to um, keep in mind what 17th century readers would have been dealing with.
2: Yeah. And I suppose there are similar factors at play, aren't there, in the way in which John Donne's work was reorganised. And you, you tell us that this is part of a move towards the construction of exemplary biographical narrative. How does that influence... Well, first of all, what's going on with Dunn there? And secondly, how does how do those editorial interventions change the way that, that we think about poetry in this period or that poetry is being thought about in this period, perhaps?
1: Thanks. Um, so Don is is an interesting character. Um, you know, he, he tends to be introduced now as um, someone who was a witty young man about town, Who resisted converting, um, to, from, from his Catholic faith to the sort of English, um, church, uh, and then ultimately had to do so because of financial exigency, at which point he just stopped writing his, his kind of smutty poetry and, and started only writing sermons and, and, you know, edifying works. We've actually found that, you know, there's, there's actually not as clear a break in Dunn's writing as, um, literary histories have sometimes held, that he, his interests were always overlapping, um, and he, he always kind of was, was walking this divide between, um, secular and sacred or, or, um, sacred and profane or however you want to put it. Um, and when Dunn's poems circulated in manuscript, which was his preferred way of circulating them in his lifetime, um, although, you know, it's it's still, I think, a, an open question how much he really wanted to circulate those poems, because there are so many copies of them. He acts like he's very modest about circulating poems, but then somehow we have, you know, more than four thousand copies today, so so I don't know that he was as private as he as he wanted to be. Um but you know, when they when they were circulating in manuscript readers kind of collected what they could get their hands on. Um, and they didn't really distinguish between the religious poems and um, the love poems or erotic poems as we might now. Um, and in the 1633 edition of Dunn's poems, they, they were similarly kind of mixed. Um, there wasn't a distinction made in the book for the most part. Um, that distinction really came in in 1635. And um, I think this is, a, a sort of an effort to um, posthumously shape Dunn's, shape and protect, I guess, Dunn's reputation as, you know, the Dean of St. Paul's, the Learned Divine um, by some of his friends um, because you have that collection of elegies on the author's death that comes at the end of the 1633 edition saying like, gosh, you know, there are, I think, three main strands of argument, but they all kind of add up to like, gosh, we hope people don't think Don was really like this, or if they do, we hope he, they don't copy him because that would be bad. Um, and so in 1635, you then have the books reorganized into these generic categories that show this trajectory from, you know, Don the, the gadabout to Don, use, you know, ending with a hymn to God the Father. Um, and so, I, you know, that's not a narrative that seems to have been available during Dunn's lifetime. Um, it seems to be something that was constructed out of the book. And and the thing that really struck me was, you know, the flea is the first poem in that 1635 collection. And if you're going to teach one Dunn poem to undergraduates now, it's the flea. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the flea is, is kind of set up as almost the microcosm of Dunn in that 1635 edition. and And that's almost been perpetuated ever since.
2: Yeah, you comment that's often the first, in any anthology, it often is the first representative done poem. Norton, you name it, it's yeah. always the flea. Well, in- Erin, it's been great talking to you about your new book, Doubtful Readers, Print Poetry and the Reading Public in Early Modern England, just published by Oxford University Press. But before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment, perhaps this monograph that you mentioned earlier on?
1: Sure. Um, I, have, I have a few things in the works at the moment. Um, I'm still wrapping up, as I mentioned, um, a monograph coming out of the research project that I'm co-authoring with Mary Louise and um, with our our colleague Sajed Chowdhury. Um, and that will be about the reception and circulation of women's writing in manuscript miscellanies. So sort of beginning with a quantitative account of um, manuscript circulation, particularly uh, with regard to women's writing, um, and then looking at some kind of particular um, questions that emerged from this this massive data set that we assembled between 2014 and 2018. Um, The database itself is now available in open access at research.nygalway.ie. So if you want to have a poke around and look at our reception data um, and also kind of our Um, description of how that data set was assembled because we we don't make a claim to comprehensivity. Um, But uh, yeah, it's all all there and um, definitely worth exploring. But I think the thing that that came out of research that was really exciting for me in moving into this position in digital humanities was how um, digital approaches could Help you form new research questions, but then you might just have to sit down and do kind of old fashioned qualitative analysis to answer. And that's kind of the direction that I'm going with, um, the subsequent project that I have planned to, which is, um, about, it's, it's a, um, kind of the, the first comprehensive descriptive handbook for man, early modern manuscripts. Um, so depending on the day, I call this Bowers for manuscripts or Gaskell for manuscripts. Um, so, so it'll be the research book. And then the manuscript book. Um, and I have a handful of, of related articles in between. So time.
2: Sounds, sounds like you're going to keep busy. Good. Uh, well, listen, well, thanks for your time today. Thanks for coming on to the show and talking about this really important, fabulous new book, Doubtful Readers, Print, Poetry, and the Reading Public in Early Modern England. Just published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for your time and take care.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me and and for your insightful question. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Erin. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.